For over 70 years, Oshner has been dedicated to cancer research and new cancer treatment development, bringing innovations to the fight against cancer, including more clinical trials than anywhere else in the region. I'm Dr. Jonathan Mizrahi with the Oshner Cancer Institute. One of the most common complaints I hear from my patients when I first meet them to discuss their cancer diagnosis and treatment plan is that there is a lack of reliable, available information about cancer. Evaluating what is or isn't a credible source of information on the internet is challenging, even for the most experienced of Googlers. We are seeking to fill that gap by providing the public with understandable, reliable information about cancer. Join me as we talk to healthcare experts at Oshner about what you need to know should you or a loved one receive a cancer diagnosis. Welcome to All In Against Cancer. Colorectal cancer is one of the most common cancers in the United States. While improvements in screening and early detection have been made, this disease still accounts for over 50,000 deaths in this country per year. In this episode of the All In Against Cancer podcast, we talk with Oshner radiation oncologist, Dr. Jeff Burkeen, and Oshner colorectal surgeon, Dr. Forrest Johnston, to learn more about the diagnosis and staging of colorectal cancer, what treatment options are available to patients, and how to screen and reduce the risk for developing this malignancy. So welcome Dr. Jeff Burkeen and Dr. Forrest Johnson to the show. I really appreciate you both coming on and uh, chatting with me about this really important topic. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. So I want to start this conversation about colorectal cancer in a moment, but first let's take a second and just do a quick introduction. So Dr. Burkeen, Jeff, can you uh, tell me a little bit about yourself? What path led you here to working in Osher, New Orleans? Of course. So I grew up in Colorado, Colorado Springs, ended up going to school at Notre Dame in Indiana, and then medical school in Texas. Met my wife, who was at LSU at the time in medical school. And then we fell in love, of course, got married, um, fell in love with New Orleans and Louisiana in general, of course, in that time. Did my medicine year of training at Tulane University in New Orleans, and then for radiation oncology, went out to UC San Diego for a brief four years to learn everything about radiation, and then came back to Oshner and have been on staff um, since 2019. All right. And uh, Forrest, what about you? Uh, so I'm a colorectal surgeon. I've been here for uh, going on my fifth year now. We came here basically just because we really liked it. I know that I should have some deep inspirational motive as to why I came here. But honestly, my wife's family lives in Florida. My family lives in Texas. So this for us was like Switzerland. So it worked as a quite nice spot to be close to both. It was a good group of people. It's worked out quite well. So I'm very happy to be here. Well, you're probably the first person to compare New Orleans to Switzerland in the world, but we'll <laughs> run with that. So uh, let's start talking and uh, about colorectal cancer. Uh, Dr. Burkeen, why don't you kind of help me answer this question. How do you define colorectal cancer? When a patient, you know, asks you, uh, what is colorectal cancer? What do you tell them? Yeah, so it's really important to understand that the colon and rectum are part of the gastrointestinal tract. And so when you eat food, eventually it goes to your stomach, and then it goes into your small intestine and ends up in your large intestine, which consists of the colon and the rectum. And there's different parts to the colon. And so it's just based on how food travels. So there's the ascending colon where food travels up on the right side of the body, the transverse colon, which goes across the body right to left, 
the descending colon on the left side of the body, which sends the food down towards the pelvis, and then the sigmoid colon, which is S-shaped or sigmoid. And then at that point, it meets into the rectum and then eventually the anus, and that's how the food and bowel is produced. The food is digested and the bowel and um, stool is produced, and then you have your bowel movements in that regard. And it's um, typically made up of adenocarcinoma, which is, you know, the mucus producing cells lining the intestines. And that's, that's typically the most common type of colorectal cancer. Right. So when we look under the microscope, and by we, I mean our pathologists, that uh, they'll see these gland-forming tumors, these adenocarcinomas, and that kind of mimics what the normal architecture of these cells would be like, but they have uh, gained a proliferation and become distorted and abnormal and thus becoming cancerous. Um, let's talk a little bit about risk factors. Uh, so, Dr. Johnson, can you tell me a little bit about what risk factors we know exist for developing colorectal cancer? Gladly. Uh, first, just to comment a little bit about the anatomy, just to kind of make it really simple, um, as I tend to try to make things as simple as possible for myself mostly, um, the colon really just functions to absorb water. It's like the world's simplest organ. So the small intestine does all the work, will uh, absorb all the nutrients, fats, proteins, and just dump out liquid into the colon. The colon is about five to five and a half feet long and then just ends in the rectum. So the colon basically just absorbs water, and as stool goes through there, it gets more and more absorbed, and then it finally goes to the rectum, which stores everything until some socially appropriate moment where you can go to the bathroom. So um, it's a pretty simple organ. Unfortunately, it does cause, or does, you know, uh, uh, frequently have polyps in there, and the polyps can become cancerous over time, hence why we're here. For risk factors, um, you know, colon cancer is really, really common. So because it's so common, they've been able to do lots of studies to try to figure out why people get this. I think anytime people have cancer in general, people want to know, like, why did this happen to me? Um, I will say the vast majority of colon cancer is sporadic. People didn't do anything in particular to, to get uh, colon cancer. But there are certain things that we know that tend to uh, give people a slightly increased risk. Um, in my mind, some of those things are modifiable and some of them aren't, right? So like certain things that can't be modified are age, right? So as people get older, people tend to have more colon cancer. There's certain race, um, racial profiling that uh, occurs within colon cancer. It's certainly highest in African-Americans. It's lowest in the Asian population. Um, uh, other things, if people have had radiation in the past, if people have inflammatory bowel disease, that can double your risk of colon and rectal cancer and it'll also show up earlier. There's certain... Uh, family uh, history. If your mom and dad had it, you're at increased risk. If you have genetic syndromes like uh, Lynch syndrome, um, which is an increase in multiple forms of cancer, uh, certain other syndromes like uh, familial polyposis, um, or if you just had prior colon polyps. So all of those will increase it. And there's other risk factors that are modifiable. So that includes smoking, uh, being overweight, type 2 diabetes, a diet, that's really high in uh, red meat or processed fat, and then a lack of physical activity. So there's certain things that you can adjust, but the majority of these things, unfortunately, are not adjustable. Right. And like you said from the beginning, it's so common that we always do want to look for risk factor. But sometimes someone will come in and be like, I have no idea why I got colorectal cancer. You don't fit nicely into one of these categories where I can say this was your primary. And don't you think? I mean, that's the majority. 
Yeah. I'm saying the majority of our patients, unfortunately, mm-hmm. have nothing. There's no cause as to why this happened to them. Right. Right. Absolutely. I see a lot of patients uh, with advanced colorectal cancer, but we know that there are certain symptoms that are common to both advanced and early stage colorectal cancer. When you have a colon cancer, oftentimes it's picked up with symptoms or signs of anemia. Now, what is anemia? That's a low hemoglobin or a low hematocrit, which is a low blood count. If your red blood cells are low, you can have symptoms. That might be fatigue. That might be you're short of breath. Uh, If it's severe, you could have a low blood pressure. You could even have chest pain if your heart's not getting enough uh, oxygen and blood flow to it. These are usually associated with low iron levels. So if you have a physician who says, hey, your iron levels are low, your blood count is low, that is, in the right population, could be a a trigger warning or a, a signal that we need to think about something going on in your colon or your rectum. Some patients may say, hey, doc, I have blood in my stool. I have red blood when I wipe or mixed in the toilet bowl, they might say that my stool is a different caliber. It used to be a certain size and now it's thin and pencil-like. Maybe you're going to the bathroom more often or perhaps on the other end of the spectrum, uh, you're obstructed, meaning you're not able to pass any bowel movements for some period of time, which is abnormal for you. You might go from having constipation chronically to having more diarrhea. You might go the opposite way, diarrhea to being more constipated. In the more advanced setting, symptoms from colon cancer can be pain, you know, whether that's from where it is involving in your colon or your rectum locally, or if the cancer has spread somewhere else distantly in your body, be it the bone, be it the liver, somewhere in your abdomen, those can all cause pain. Uh, Weight loss is a very common symptom that's uh, common to a number of cancers, colon cancer being certainly one of them. So weight loss in combination with any of these other symptoms obviously is a concerning uh, finding when you present to your physician. So all of those kind of make up the signs and symptoms of colorectal cancer. All right, Dr. Johnston, talk to me a little bit through the diagnostic evaluation. How are we making these diagnoses of colon cancer? Sure. Uh, Also, just to piggyback on what you said, I think that A lot of our colon cancers are found just on regular screening evaluations, right? They have no symptoms. So it would be great if there was a marker or some, you know, certain symptom that we said, oh, you have this, you definitely have colon cancer. But unfortunately, I think because it grows inside somewhere that's not very evident, it's not like skin cancer or even breast cancer for that matter, where it's kind of easy to identify that a lot of this goes unnoticed. And so that really highlights the importance uh, for screening because- if you are waiting for certain symptoms, if you're saying, oh, I don't have pain and therefore I must not have cancer or colon cancer, then that those two won't correlate. Um, that can certainly make it so that you have this false sense of security. Um, the Most commonly how we diagnose these are based on colonoscopy. They sometimes can be diagnosed based on imaging. You'll have a CAT scan, you'll show some sort of abnormality, but all of that then prompts a colonoscopy. Even if you have a regular screening like a fecal occult blood test or the, some of the newer DNA tests where you mail them in, those will all prompt a colonoscopy because we want to see what's going on on the inside. And then we want to be able to take uh, uh, biopsies of it and prove that this is what it is. Um, so for colon cancer, there's over 100,000 new cases per year and over 40,000 new cases of uh, rectal cancer annually. Um, with colonoscopy, we're actually seeing decreased rates of colon cancer in people. So you go in there and you can look, you'll see a um, polyp 
Um, the polyp can have certain advanced features to it, so it can have it can be bigger, it can be more firm, it can be ulcerated. Typically, those are the things that will uh, clue us to hey, this is something abnormal. At that point in time, we'll take biopsies. We might place a, ta- a small tattoo there just to mark it, and then wake you up and talk about it in the recovery room. Um, following that, then we'll go on to do staging with uh, blood work and with CAT scans. Speaking of staging, Dr. Burkeen, talk me through what staging tests. What you know? What does it mean? a stage, and then what are we ordering to try to figure out what your stage is? Yeah, so really for staging, we're trying to assess not just where the disease may have started, but also to see where it may be trying to go, whether it's nearby in the lymph nodes or more distantly in the liver or lungs, for example. And so there's different ways we can go about that. Like Dr. Johnston had mentioned, CT scan is one of those ways, which is a a imaging scan to assess the lymph nodes nearby in the pelvis but then also to take a look at the liver and lungs potentially. Another way to do staging tests and and imaging is through MRI, and that's using radio waves and magnets to further image the pelvis and get another closer look at what's going on truly with the rectum and how advanced the disease may be. Now, that all leads to what Dr. Misrahi was saying in terms of staging and what does that mean, and there's different ways we look at staging and how we stage our patients and it's the TNM staging. So T stands for tumor stage, excuse me, and that's based on the extent or the size of the tumor and how far the cancer has grown into the wall of the colon or rectum, and that's including the different layers of the rectum and its involvement in potentially breaking through that rectum. And then the N stage is uh, the nodal stage, and that means has the cancer spread to the lymph nodes. And finally, the M stage is related to metastasis. So metastatic disease means that it has spread distantly and is not nearby, and and that's a TNM TNM stage. And all that calculates out once you do this TNM staging to what we traditionally think is stage one, two, three, and four. So one being the most localized stage and four being the furthest advanced stage. So... um, we use these T and M, N, M criteria to uh, dictate whether we're stage one, two, three, or four. So let's now shift to talking specifically about rectal cancer. Uh, rectal cancer we treat quite differently than colon cancer on the uh, in the localized setting. So if a patient has a stage one, stage two, stage three rectal cancer, we're often treating that as a separate entity than colon cancer. So. Uh, Dr. Burkeen, talk to me a little bit through, um, you know, what our options are in terms of radiation, since radiation really becomes a component in the rectal cancer localized setting. So what are you telling patients since that's your area of expertise? Yeah, so certainly, like you mentioned, radiation is a very key component before any surgery or, you know, even before chemotherapy, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in detail later. Um, it's focused treatment, so this is not total body therapy, and it's a way to shrink the cancer down or improve the chance of a better outcome at the time of surgery. And being a radiation oncologist, radiation means focused x-rays. And so there's a machine where a patient lies on their back, and the machine rotates around the patient, delivers, delivering those very focused x-rays. And typically... There are two treatment paradigms we follow with radiation, and the way we frame it is short-course radiation, or five treatments, um, typically on back-to-back days, 
versus long course radiation, which is over the course of a five to five and a half week period, which is 25 to 28 treatments typically. And that long course is typically given with chemotherapy to help the radiation work a little bit better versus a short course radiation plan is a higher dose per treatment plan. And that's typically given alone prior to any other therapy. And we don't need to get into the nuances of why you would choose one or the over or, or the other, but suffice to say the data is coming out that, you know, in a lot of cases you can use this shorter course of radiation, which might be just as good as the long course. Is that accurate to say? That's very accurate and it's it's very timely as well with the pandemic and having folks come in for five treatments versus five and a half weeks of treatment, absolutely. Right. Dr. Johnson, talk me a little bit through the surgical management of a localized rectal cancer. Um, what are you looking at? What treatment options are you offering to patients? So for rectal cancer, we're just talking about cancer in the last basically 15 centimeters of your intestine. So the whole colon, colon cancer will be treated differently than rectal cancer. So rectal cancer is different than colon cancer. It's the last part of the colon, but we treat it differently because it's in a very confined space. So the colon's in your abdomen. There's lots of space around there. Um, but the rectum is down in the pelvis, kind of densely surrounded by your pelvic bones, the bladder, the prostate in men, the vagina in women, that kind of thing. So it's a much more narrow area. So as a result, we, that's why I think we treat it differently because um, the recurrence rates and kind of the outcomes are different. So for us, for localized uh, disease, meaning disease is just in the rectum that hasn't spread to the liver or the lungs or anything like that, there are a myriad of options. Um, now it seems like you can do almost anything in rectal uh, cancer surgery. Historically, it used to be that you would come in, you would have rectal cancer, you would get a uh, removal of the entire rectum with or without the anus, just depending on how low the rectal cancer was. Now we really try to push the limits. We realize that doing these big invasive surgeries has significant impact on the patient's quality of life. So we will frequently try to do as minimally invasive surgery as possible. So based on the staging that Dr. Burkina talked about earlier, if it's a very early stage cancer and it doesn't look like it's gone to the lymph nodes or even if it's just a really big polyp, sometimes we can just remove that in one piece through the bottom. It's called transanal surgery. So you wake up, you have no incisions. We've done everything through just the your bottom while you were asleep, obviously, taken out the cancer, closed everything back up, and then we kind of send that off to the pathologist and look to see are there any high-risk features? Do we think any of the nodes are involved, or has, is it just localized to the rectum? If it's just localized to the rectum, we can typically just watch at that point in time afterwards. If it's anything more involved than that, then oftentimes we'll try to do upfront therapy beforehand. Historically, like I said, you used to do surgery first, then you would do radiation, then you would do chemo, then it became radiation first, then surgery, then chemo, and then now recently it's become radiation, chemo, then surgery. I think it's probably because we're just so polite as surgeons. Hmm. Um, I don't know why you guys are laughing, but um, uh, that we just allowed you guys to go first. But I think, honestly, the patients just get better outcomes. By getting all of their treatment up front, they get better outcomes. So. Yeah, so more advanced uh, tumors will get something that we call total neoadjuvant therapy, where they'll get all of their treatment up front. The most interesting thing that's come out of giving everybody radiation and chemotherapy up front is that about 25 to 30% of those patients will end up having what we call a clinical complete response. 
So the tumor will basically melt and go away entirely. The lymph nodes around there will look totally normal on the MRI. And at that point in time, to the best of our knowledge, the medical treatment and the radiation has essentially killed the cancer. And we can uh, successfully wait and not do any sort of surgery. It makes very it makes people, especially people who like to do surgery and who believe in surgery, very uncomfortable. But it's probably the best for the patient. So we'll just kind of closely monitor those patients. It, it does require the patient to buy in to be compliant and show up every couple of months to kind of get close follow-up because we know that the, about 30% of those patients will have a recurrence. And if we were to, if we were able to detect those early, we can still have the same outcome as we would have if we did surgery up front. But it is a very interesting and exciting uh, way that we're treating patients now. Right. And if you're talking about improving quality of life, I mean, if you can offer someone a non-surgical approach after having, you know, months of treatment with, you know, Jeff or one of his colleagues and, you know, me or one of my colleagues, uh, you know, I think that's something most people would, would be quite excited about if that were a good option for them. Moving on to the colon cancer space. So we talked a little bit about rectal cancer, the bottom most, we use the word distal, but the end part of the colon, the large intestine. Let's move to the rest of the colon. So management of early stage colon cancer. So I'm talking stage one, stage two, stage three. Uh, you know, first, they're usually getting diagnosed in most cases, either based on symptoms or a screening test like a colonoscopy. And then they're meeting with a surgeon, a general surgeon or a specialized colorectal surgeon. So Dr. Johnson, talk me through your management surgically of patients with an early stage colon cancer. So for patients that get diagnosed with colon cancer, we do the imaging. If the imaging shows that it's basically localized to the colon, the next best step then is to do a resection. That's a removal of the colon and the lymph nodes that drain the colon, right? So we know that colon cancer and rectal cancer grow in three ways. They grow into the wall of the colon, they grow to the lymph nodes around the colon, and then they grow to the liver and lungs far away. So we want to, with the surgery, the surgery has two parts. The first part is to remove the cancer and to get nice, healthy margins, put everything back together. The second part is to remove the lymph nodes that drain that area to see, has the cancer spread to the lymph nodes? Because then we're able to tell the patient the final stage and do they need any additional treatment? What's the risk of recurrence? What does the long-term kind of outlook look like for them? Um, The resection uh, can most commonly be done laparoscopically or robotically, so we don't have to make these big incisions like what we did 30 years ago. We have really good cameras that we can do through very small incisions and still have great outcomes for it. It's typically a three-day hospital stay, six-week recovery, that kind of thing. And then often, depending on what the outcome of that surgery is, patients will make their way to a medical oncologist clinic, so someone like me. And they we ask the question, does that patient have a uh, need or could they benefit from getting any additional chemotherapy uh, or any chemotherapy, any additional therapy? So the question is, can we do something more to reduce the risk that their cancer is going to come back? The idea behind adding some chemotherapy in that setting is that, hey, folks like Dr. Johnson and his colleagues are great surgeons, but there is a chance that there is some cancer still left behind. There could be microscopic cells that are floating around in the bloodstream that we're not detecting on a CT scan, an MRI, or whatever other imaging modalities we use, but that could still be there, and we could have a chance to eradicate those and provide you an increased chance of cure. So we offer chemotherapy for patients of some patients with stage two colon cancer and some patient and 
pretty much every patient with stage 3 colon cancer. Now, pretty much the determination between stage 3 and stage 2 is whether you have lymph nodes that are involved. That makes you a stage 3. And pretty much universally, we're offering and recommending chemotherapy for patients with stage 3 colon cancer. Uh, we make a determination for how long you need chemo. Is it three months? Is it six months? It can be IV chemo. It can be a combination of IV and oral chemo. It can be two drugs. It can be one drug. These are some of the nuances that your medical oncologist would talk you through. And these decisions would be based on um, a few factors that come from the pathologic analysis of the tumor resection that uh, folks like uh, surgeons like Dr. Johnson would have done. We look at the depth of the invasion of the cancer. We look at, are there lymph nodes? How many lymph nodes were involved? We look at certain molecular markers, like is this something with what we call microsatellite instability, which I'll get into a little bit later, which sometimes determines whether or not we use chemotherapy. Is there an obstruction to the patient present where they couldn't have a bowel movement that increases your risk? Potentially, we think of the cancer coming back. So that's a patient where we might have a lower threshold to use chemotherapy in the setting. So all of those factor into that decision of whether we give chemotherapy for a finite amount of time in order to try to increase the chance that we have cured the cancer. Next, we're going to move into management of stage four colorectal cancer. And first thing that I want to tell patients is you should know, are we going for a curative approach in stage four, which does exist? Unlike many cancers, in colorectal cancer, we still can cure a small fraction of patients with stage 4 cancer. Or are we going for a non-curative approach? And, and this is important because it helps us pick what treatments we're going to use and um, how aggressive we're going to be in terms of the chemotherapy and potential surgical options. So I'll give you an example. A patient comes in and they have a colon cancer uh, that we know has one or two spots that it's spread to, metastases in the liver. That's a patient that today's day and age we think may have a, a decent chance to have a curative intent approach to their treatment with involvement of some chemotherapy and a surgery for the colon and potentially the liver. Or there might be someone who has a number of lung nodules, liver metastases, and cancer throughout their abdominal cavity, the peritoneum, and that patient in all likelihood will never be able to get to a point where we can make all their cancer go away. The next question that we want to evaluate is their what we call molecular profiling. These are intrinsic characteristics of your tumor that can help identify, one, prognosis, but two, what treatment options may be best for you. We want to tailor the treatment for your tumor precisely. And if you're reading into these, the literature or doing Google searches and hearing about colorectal cancer, you'll see certain things pop up. You'll see something called MSI microsatellite instability or mismatch repair proteins. These are all kind of synonymous. Basically, do you have a profile on your tumor that would say, hey, an approach like immune therapy, which is totally different from chemotherapy, might be quite effective in treating your cancer? So that's one thing we look at. That we've seen about 5% of patients with stage 4 colorectal cancer. We also look at KRAS or NRAS. Uh, this is a mutation that's present in about 45% or so of colorectal cancers. And that has some uh, importance in terms of what treatments may or may not work for you. We look at a, uh, a gene called BRAF, and that is mutating up to about 10% of patients with colorectal cancer and has therapeutic implications. If you have a BRAF mutation, you tend to have a, a little bit more of a aggressive cancer and potentially a worse prognosis. We look at 
proteins like HER2, NTREC. These are just a variety of other proteins, genes that we look at uh, really reflexively in all stage four colorectal cancer patients. Um, and, you know, we're also looking for on broad-based uh, platforms where we're looking into uh, what molecular abnormalities a patient might have. So once we've identified all that, we then choose a chemotherapy. We uh, treat, use treatments that go throughout the body, primarily IV, though we do have some oral options. And we're choosing a chemotherapy backbone that's usually a combination of two drugs, 5-FU and either oxaliplatin or renotecan, so Fulfox, Fulfiri are usually two good options. Then we add some drugs to that in combination based on some of these profile characteristics that I mentioned earlier. Uh, we do have a number of different chemotherapy options, and we also think about clinical trials, so either in the first-line setting or in the advanced setting after you've already received one or two treatments. Moving on to clinical trials, I want you guys to weigh in a little bit about, in the early stage, what clinical trials maybe we have available or you've heard about that seem exciting uh, in the colorectal cancer space in the early stage setting. Yeah, I think on the radiation standpoint, it's really about watch and wait, right? So we have a lot of data with long course chemo radiation, and then watch and wait approach after that and close follow up, and how effective that can be. But in terms of the short course paradigm with radiation, we don't necessarily have too much of that data. And so there are definitely open trials across the country in various centers, um, where they're looking at folks that have from stage one to three rectal cancer using the short course radiation approach, the five treatment approach, followed by chemotherapy, and then watch and wait and seeing how those folks do. And I think from a surgical standpoint, a lot of the surgical clinical trials now are really focused on either one, like novel techniques, you know, trying to do things through smaller incisions, earlier patient recovery, faster patient recovery, um, getting the patients up and moving to have a better outcome quicker. Um, there's a lot of focus on kind of enhanced recovery after surgery, uh, pain control, different methods of pain control. Um, but I think one of the you know most exciting things, or kind of one of the crazier things that's going to come out is there's also recently we were all involved in prospect trial, and so it just kind of shows you the whole landscape of rectal cancer, right? The prospect trial was looking at do we even use radiation for rectal cancer, and I think it just goes to show you that. There are so many different options right now, um, and so it'll be very exciting to kind of see what what comes out of that, and just kind of what the landscape of for especially for rectal cancer looks like over the next five years, because it seems like it's very rapidly progressing and changing, becoming way more patient centered than it ever was before. So you're saying this podcast will become completely obsolete in about five years? No, no, no. you will always be relevant. You'll we'll, always be relevant. We'll cut. We'll, right. we'll cut Dr. Burkina. That's what you're saying. <laughs> Well, if, if that's what, what it takes to have better outcomes for patients, we'll take it. So uh, in the advanced stage, we have a number of clinical trial options, both at Osher and, you know, really across the country and the world. And, and they're focused, I would say, in kind of two broad realms. One of those is trying to make this class of treatment called immunotherapy that I touched on earlier, which is harnessing your own body's immune system to try to fight the cancer. We know that that works really well in these patients with something called microsatellite instability, which I've touched on, but it doesn't work that well in patients who don't have that. So that's 95% of patients with advanced colorectal cancer where it doesn't work, uh, or it seems not to work when you give that drug on its own. So the question is, how can we make those drugs work uh, for the non 
microsatellite instability high patients. So that's one area of research. Uh, another area is trying to identify better targets. So we talked about tailoring treatments to the individual. So we identify what mutations you have and we see if we can have a drug that matches up with that mutation. Um, this idea of precision therapy, personalized oncology, is really um, important and hot right now. And when we're looking for patients at their tumors, trying to find out what molecular, what protein, what gene abnormalities they have, we find that there's a lot of diversity there and there are things that we can target. So the more we look, the more we find, the more drug companies, research scientists can develop drugs that can target those abnormalities. So those are kind of the two areas in advanced colorectal cancer where, where the trial landscape is headed. Next, we'll do our recurring segment, what can I do to decrease my risk of colorectal cancer? So I'm going to start with you, Dr. Johnston. What can I do to decrease my risk of getting colorectal cancer? I think that the uh, most important thing is just to get screened. There's a whole multitude of tests that can be done in order to get screened. There are tests that you can do in the privacy of your own house with a stool sample that you can send in. Um, uh, there's multiple different uh, kind of companies that do that. There are um, a CT scan that you can do, like a virtual colonoscopy. Um, and then the kind of gold standard or the most straightforward is just to do a regular colonoscopy. I will tell you that I think most patients have an initial fear of colonoscopy because, and this is just a personal story about my mother, um, but my mother thinks that when you get a colonoscopy, you basically, someone's just looking at your bottom for some inordinate period of time and they're calling in all the medical students and everybody's looking at your bottom. But it it's just nothing like that whatsoever. The patient is covered with a sheet. The lights are off. I'm staring at a 50-inch monitor on a wall looking for polyps the whole time. So not that we're not focused on you as a patient, but we're certainly not it's certainly not nearly as invasive as what I think the average person thinks of. You know, the patient's entirely asleep. They wake up in the recovery room. You give them a copy of their report. It takes 15 to 20 minutes. It's very, very straightforward. It's very easy. And every patient that I've ever had that was very hesitant about it, after going through their colonoscopy, woke up and was like, man, that was super easy. I got great sleep. Like, And here's some pictures. You know, I tell patients to put the pictures on their fridge. I doubt they do. Um, but it's just an easy way to uh, look and see. It's the most comprehensive way. And the best part, honestly, about colonoscopy, and I, I will quit droning on about colonoscopy, um, is just that it is both diagnostic. We can tell you what's there, but it's also therapeutic. If there's some small polyp that's there, we can take it out. We have shown that if we remove polyps during your colonoscopy, we will decrease your chance of dying from colonorectal cancer. And that's one of the few screening studies that can actually say that it can has, has an impact on your mortality. Um, the other studies, if you have a, a FIT test or a DNA test or a CT or a virtual colonoscopy, if those show some sort of abnormality, um, then that follow-up test would then be to get a colonoscopy. You just have to realize that with the less invasive tests, right, everything has a cost. So if it's less invasive, it's going to be less sensitive, and so you're more likely to miss stuff. Um, so even like the FIT tests, right, they're, they'll advertise on TV that they're 92% chance of them detecting colon cancer even in an early stage. Well, that's correct. What they're not telling you is they're only 50% in identifying polyps. So they're missing 50% of polyps. Polyps are what go on to form cancer. So if we can detect it when it's a polyp and get rid of it, you never get cancer. You never have to listen to this podcast. Um, 
the other kind of risk factors, uh, the other things you can do to decrease your risk um, are to eat a diet that's um, high in fiber, fruits and vegetables. Um, there may be a role for aspirin, especially in reducing polyp formation. That's been shown, but then the problem is when you take aspirin, more patients will bleed. So there, again, is some cost to everything. Um, but for some patients who have polyposis syndromes, we will ask them to take aspirin. Um, certainly smoking can increase your risk for developing it. So we strongly encourage you to uh, quit smoking and then also just being physically active, right? We know that being uh, overweight can contribute to the development of colon and rectal cancer. Um, and so if being physically active, losing weight can be helpful as well. Great. And I'm just going to jump on the screening bandwagon for a second here. Uh, two points. One is that they just lowered the screening age uh, for a recommendation for an average risk patient to 45. So it was 50 where they would say, all right, that's when you need to get your first screening test, whether it's colonoscopy, a stool-based test like you talked about. Um, and now it's 45. And that's because we know uh, from data, there's evidence to show that the rates of colorectal cancer being diagnosed in young folks younger than 45, uh, even in their 20s and 30s, is increasing quite dramatically. We don't exactly know why. We have some hypotheses based on diet, based on antibiotic use, uh, obesity rates, stuff like that. Uh, but we don't exactly know why. So the rate, the the recommendations um, have uh, lowered, and uh, people should start getting screened at 45. If you have a first degree family member, mom, dad, sister, brother, uh, you should be getting a colonoscopy or your first screening test 10 years before their age of diagnosis. They were diagnosed at 42, you get, di you get your first screening test at 32, something else to keep in mind. The other point I would make is that, you know, you mentioned all the different great screening tests we have, but, you know, we'll tell patients uh, the best screening test is the one you'll do. So if you will never want to do a colonoscopy, but you'll do your annual stool-based blood test, then, then great, do the stool-based test. Um, knowing that if that is positive, you, you will need a colonoscopy. Um, but, but just get screened. Uh, that's the bottom line here. For our next recurring segment, how do we treat colorectal cancer at Oshner? So I'll start with you, Dr. Burkeen. What's, what's the Oshner approach? How are we approaching patients that come to us with colorectal cancer? So thankfully at Oshner, it's a high-volume center with a lot of specialists. And so the patients are discussed in a team-based way. And it's a meeting called Tumor Board, which is a, a meeting weekly typically with the surgeons present, the medical oncologist present, and the radiation oncologist present, as well as other physicians such as pathologists who review tissue pathology and biopsies and things like that, and the radiology team to review imaging. And it's an opportunity to formally present the patient's case, go through the imaging formally, as well as the pathology, and come up with treatment plans together. And then what about with our typical rectal cancer patient? We talked a little bit about this, doing everything up front, the radiation, the chemo. I know the answer to this, but is that our approach at Oshner? Yes, definitely. Our approach at Oshner, for, especially for locally advanced patients that have rectal cancer, is the total neoadjuvant therapy approach that Dr. Johnston had previously mentioned, which is moving the radiation and the chemotherapy all up front, even before a surgery and typically about 90% of the time with our patient population and who we see, it's the short course approach with radiation, which is the five treatments, and then having them heal for a few weeks and then starting the chemotherapy package. All right, Dr. Johnson, for your average colon cancer patient with a localized colon cancer, how are we treating that patient at Oshner? 
For the straightforward colon cancer patient that has not had metastatic disease, they will typically proceed with surgery up front. If there's any concern for involvement of surrounding organs, anything like that, or they're particularly complex, those patients will also be presented at tumor board, which I think is a real strength of the system to have multiple people weigh in. It also helps, I think, from the patient standpoint so that there's not 10 people telling you 10 different ideas. There's one uniform idea. Um, so I think that's a real uh, strong point of the system. But yeah, so typically it's uh, they get staged, they get surgery. If there's high-risk features or nodal involvement, then uh, at that point in time, we'll uh, send them over to medical oncology for evaluation for chemotherapy. And for the stage four metastatic patients, you know, again, we ask the question, is this patient a candidate for a curative intent approach? If they are, then we'll present them at tumor board and say, hey, surgeons, radiation docs, everyone, let's look at these patients and say, what's going to be our approach to this patient? Otherwise, we're doing this molecular profiling, which I highlighted earlier. Are these patients MSI high? Are these tumors have these RAS, RAF mutations, like I talked about earlier? And then we decide, should we give you a standard of care option? Uh, or is there a clinical trial option where we can kind of think outside the box and do something a little bit novel in our approach to treating you? So that's our approach at Osher. For our next recurring segment, what should I ask my oncologist at my first appointment? I'm going to ask you, Dr. Johnson, what, what should they ask their surgeon, surgical oncologist, their radiation oncologist, what should you ask at your first appointment? I think the first thing is just to make sure you have a correct understanding of the diagnosis, right? So to make sure that it's obviously been reviewed by a pathologist and that the cancer has been staged appropriately, right? So that should involve a CT scan uh, and blood work. And that will allow us to get a better picture in terms of what everything looks like. If it's rectal cancer, that will also mean an MRI of the pelvis to look to see if there's any nodes that are involved um, from the rectal cancer, because that will change the way that we can guide you in terms of your treatment. Um, the other uh, thing I would really ask is, especially if it's a complex tumor, if it's a rectal cancer, is, is this going to be presented at a, at a tumor board? I think that the average patient benefits if it's at all abnormal, if it's not just a straightforward colon cancer, outside of that, I think they really benefit from having a discussion about their uh, tumor. And so I would just uh, encourage people to ask that. Are there any clinical trials? Um, was the microsatellite status looked at? That's now something that's routine in all of our cancers from here. So when they get biopsied at the time of colonoscopy, as soon as the pathologist sees that it's a cancer, they will reflexively order these MSI testing to see if we can, again, better better inform the patient in terms of their prognosis and their treatment options. And then if it is stage four, like you said, what's the chance for, for, uh, for cure? You know, is it stage four localized or is it stage four widespread? Yeah. And one thing I'll add there is also, if you're a patient, you should ask, hey, is this something I should be worried about has a genetic component? Uh, sometimes that's something that we'll pick up, you know, certainly from a family history. Yes, I've got three cousins and two siblings who have colorectal cancer. But sometimes it's more subtle. Uh, sometimes there's something that's seen on the molecular profiling, this MSI status that can indicate, hey, maybe you have a Lynch syndrome. Maybe it's something that they see uh, in a colonoscopy, that you have a lot of polyps, more than you would expect an average patient. That can be a trigger to doing some genetic testing, which can have implications uh, for your family and also potentially for treatment. And then along with the family thing, Right, patients who get diagnosed with colon and rectal cancer, they just need to realize that their their 
family is also at risk of developing colon and rectal cancer. They have an increased risk, as we talked about earlier. So those patients, all first-degree relatives, brothers, sisters, um, and then children uh, would need to get a colonoscopy. So brothers and sisters should go ahead and have a colonoscopy, and then their kids should have a colonoscopy 10 years prior or at the age of 40. For our next recurring segment, fact or fiction? All right, this first question is for you, Dr. Johnston, being a surgeon. So... Fact or fiction, I need surgery for my colon cancer. I will have to get an ostomy. I'll have to get uh, you know, a bag that uh, my stool comes out of. Yeah, I think that is the most common concern that patients show up with is, you know, am I going to have a bag uh, after this surgery? For the vast majority of all colon cancers, the answer is no. They can, like I said earlier, the vast majority of these can be done laparoscopically. We can typically hook everything back together at that time. For rectal cancers, it's all about location. Um, the majority of rectal cancers uh, can often be put back together. They will need a temporary ostomy or bag just to allow the connection that we made to heal. Um, and then if the rectal cancer is too low, if it involves the muscles of the anal canal, you know, the number one goal of surgery is to remove the cancer. So we would need to remove that part that's involved. Um, if there was no anal muscle, then at that point in time, that would be the only real time where the patient would need to have a permanent ostomy. Other issues for an ostomy would be if the patient has a lot of medical issues, can't get around very well, um, and would just be better served in general by having a colostomy for a quality of life standpoint. But for the vast majority, no colostomy is necessary. So we'll go with fiction on that one for the fiction. vast majority. Of fiction. All right, and this one's for you, Dr. Burkeen. Uh, if I get radiation for my cancer, I shouldn't be around other people. I shouldn't be around my pets. Uh, I shouldn't be around kids because I can pass on the radiation to them. Fact or fiction? Thankfully, that's a hard fiction and actually one of the more common questions that's asked in the initial visit. Um, the machine itself, again, just delivers x-rays once the machine is turned off. There's no glowing green. There's no radioactive spiders in the room. You're not going to emit radiation. You're not going to feel stronger. You know, it's, it's something where, again, once you leave that treatment room, there's no radiation left in your body. And then when you go home, of course, you can have loved ones sit in your lap, kids, grandkids, small pets, all the above. Okay, so we'll go with a, a good fiction on that one, too. Well, I think that's about it for our episode today. I just want to highlight a couple things. One is get screened. No matter what your screening test is, get screened. You know, our advancements in radiation surgical techniques have really um, taken off, uh, and, and medical therapies as well. Uh, for advanced patients, um, we have way more in our armamentarium to treat colorectal cancer, you know, certainly than we did 10 years ago. So I want to thank you both for coming in and chatting with us today and offering your expertise and, and thoughts about colorectal cancer. And uh, again, thank you to Dr. Burkeen and thank you to Dr. Johnston. Thank you, Thank you so much. So if you or someone in your family has been diagnosed with colorectal cancer, I hope this episode can give you some guidance on the diagnosis, evaluation, and treatment options available. The Oshner Colorectal Cancer Treatment Team uses a collaborative, multidisciplinary approach to treatment of patients across all stages of disease with the latest surgical, radiation, and medical therapies to help patients not only survive, but thrive. We tailor our treatments to our individual patients and utilize the most up-to-date medical evidence to guide our recommendations. 
to schedule an appointment with a cancer specialist at Oshner, go to my.oshner.org. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. I'm Dr. Mizrahi with the Oshner Cancer Institute. I'll see you next time on the All In Against Cancer podcast.